Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and this week I'm coming to you from beautiful, just amazingly beautiful uh, Vermont in New England in the northern United States. Uh, but also joining me from the United States, not too far away, very early. Uh, so we appreciate you getting up so early on this Sunday morning. Anne Sherman, who is our social media manager on their Facebook page. Good morning, Anne. Good morning. And good afternoon to Kobus van Staden from the Center for Chinese Studies at Stellenbosch University in Cape Town, South Africa. How are you today? Very well, thanks. I've been up for hours and hours. Yes, I would hope so, actually. So, uh, well, we are going to talk about three <laughs> topics today. Uh, we're going to talk first about the growing role of Chinese educational exchanges in Africa. There was a very big report that came out, uh, the e-learning report. Uh, also, the not only just educational exchanges, but also the growing importance of Chinese technological investment and how that's impacting education. And also has some personal experiences that she's going to bring to bear on this, and we're going finally kind of touch on the, the role and the emerging role of Confucius Institutes on the continent. Then we're going to move on to a subject that's growing in controversy around Lake Turkana, where both a dam is being built that might have a huge environmental impact, as well as the uh, recent discovery of nothing else other than oil. So a lot of controversy brewing around there. And finally, we're going to end on uh, a huge subject. We're just going to touch on it very, very briefly today. And that is the competition between India and China and that perception of the Indians and Chinese feeling as if they are in some kind of battle for, uh, and this is more from the Indian side, but this idea of that the Indians are falling behind the Chinese in, uh, in their investments in Africa. Okay, let's start right off the bat uh, with our educational kind of focus. Um, Kobus, in terms of education, you are at Stellenbosch University, and if I'm not, if I'm correct, that is in fact a home of a Confucius Institute, one of uh, about 18 or 19 Confucius Institutes on the continent. Uh, when we talk about Chinese education and educational exchanges and the growing role of educational influence in Africa, what does that actually mean? Well, yes, Stanimosh University, I think, is the f was the first um, Confucius Institute in Africa, um, and it's um, you know it's it's really expanded its um, you know its Mandarin education role. Um, for example, like I'm you know I'm, I'm taking a second year um, Mandarin level class, ma second year level Mandarin class in um, at Stellenbosch, and our class had to be divided because I had so many people. You know, kind of so there's there's two second year kind of classes running concurrently. Um, at the same time, um, you know, there's been um, a lot of expansion in terms of academic exchange. So, for example, Stellenbosch University itself has connections with, um, I think, what, the Academy for Social Sciences in Beijing. Um, and... Um, and the same kind of, uh, you know, developments have been happening right across Africa. So recently, for example, um, two universities in Kenya have have um, set up uh, relationships with the University of, Sh of Shanghai for Science and Technology. Um, you know, and, and you see the same kind of pattern of economic, of, of university-university exchange and Confucius Institutes popping up all over the continent. Now, is it, when we think of the Chinese and educational exchanges, I think the first thing that comes to mind are these Confucius Institutes and Mandarin language education being the focus of it. But Anne, in your experience, particularly from the time you were in Senegal, did most of the, the Chinese educational presence, or if there was one, relate around Mandarin, or was it around agriculture, any other types of educational exchanges? So at the university that I was at in San Luis, Senegal, uh, there was an exchange teacher who, she only taught Mandarin, so it was 
focus on the language. Um, but um, there are also tons of scholarships and opportunities for exchange for Senegalese um, to go study in China and also in Japan. There are actually more opportunities to study in Japan than in China, but um, most of the Senegalese at the university tried to get into the Chinese language class every single semester because they saw it as uh, kind of an, the only way that you might find a job after university which is interesting there's so much business and that's changing in a place like Senegal where the the, the two languages uh, of, of interest now for young people and I heard this in Congo Brazzaville as well was not French but it was English and Mandarin because those are the languages of, of increasingly of international commerce I guess I want to move a little bit beyond the language part of it because that seems to be very obvious and very important but very obvious I, I, you know, for me, one of the things that I think that the Chinese bring to bear, and I think a lot of Westerners overlook, is their experience, for example, in agricultural and rural development, uh, their experience in rural technology. You know, the Chinese, unlike the West, come from uh, an equally poor society, particularly in the Western regions of China and whatnot. Have either of you ever, or have any thoughts or opinions on, on, on that aspect of, of education, not the formal traditional university side of it? Well, Kobus, I don't know about um, I, your experience. Go ahead, Anne. I was going to say, um, there, were, there were Chinese in Senegal who were also, uh, they had a hospital, they also had a farm. And the interesting thing that I noticed about both these things was they were only serving Chinese. So it wasn't, it didn't seem like kind of cooperative training, you know, tech transfer. These were, you know, Chinese farms using Chinese agricultural techniques, but they weren't um, kind of, being used to help the Senegalese or train them. Kobus? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I experienced a similar thing in um, outside of Johannesburg, there's a, there's a quite a large Taiwanese community um, and they similarly um, set up a whole lot of agricultural um, uh, you know, operations, a lot of farms and so on um, to supply the Chinese community, the Chinatowns of, of Johannesburg, uh, and the, particularly the, the, the restaurants in, in Johannesburg. Um, but what was interesting was, even though they were, you know, these were like all business, kind of non-NGO kind of operations, what happened a lot was that people in the little town where these where these people are based um, ended up kind of getting seeds from the from the Taiwanese and ended up starting grow, starting up their own little farms, kind of using a, I mean, growing Chinese vegetables, and also kind of contributing to the, the kind of growing market for Chinese vegetables um, in Johannesburg. So it had a kind of an interesting kind of spillover effect, um, but it wasn't a, a concerted kind of government run, you know, kind of program. You know, this is one of these areas where, you know, we've heard since the BBC Africa debate a few weeks ago, where we've been talking a lot about how Africans need to set the terms of the debate for trade and the terms of trade and the terms of the relationship between Africa and China. And it strikes me that that a lot of African governments can learn from the Chinese in how the Chinese were be, were able to extract skills transfers from foreign investors coming to China to say a condition of you investing in this country, in China in that case, was you have to train X number of workers, you have to transfer this kind of technology so that we can have that capacity on our own. And it seems to be that would be a, le- a point of leverage for the Ghanaians, for Zambians, for South Africans, you know, those stronger governments like Ethiopia that have a more balanced relationship or at least are on the way to getting a more balanced relationship. Do you think, Kobus, that there is any hope for that or is, is, is corruption or a, 
a sense that the money is more important than the skills transfer, still the dominant thinking in terms of setting that trade relationship to be more equal, particularly in relation to skills transfer and education? Um, I think there is hope, but I'm, I'm not sure whether the hope really lies necessarily in direct skills transfer, but rather in the kind of galvanizing effect that that um, Chinese technology is bringing to African society. Oh, Anne, it looks like we've lost Cobus there. What are your thoughts on that? Um, well, I think one of the biggest obstacles I encountered in, in terms of tech transfer was um, the language barriers. So I met a group of Chinese uh, Huawei workers and they were meant to be training other Senegalese and none of them could speak French or Wolof, any of the Senegalese languages. One of them could speak a little bit of English but you know it was the the Senegalese working with them ended up just being guards for the telecom towers and you know I don't know what what, what was meant to be or what was supposed to happen, but I think that's a huge issue for well, tech transfer in general. No, it's yeah. going to be huge. Um, Go ahead, Kobus, you're back. I, I think, um, yes, I'm back. Um, so, you know, kind of, I think mentioning Huawei, it seems to me that, that the real kind of um, boon to Africa is is rather from the kind of technological inputs that come, you know, via the the, the, the networks that, that companies like Huawei is setting up. Um, so, for example, this, um, this e-learning report that I was reading, um, had this amazing statistic where they're saying like 10 years ago, um, the the amount of like phone landline lines in in Africa, um, there were there were more landline lines in Manhattan they were than there was in the whole of the African continent, and now there there are more than more uh, mobile phone subscriptions in, in in Africa than in the whole of America, um, you know. So so I think just in terms of the in terms of for example the uh, the mobile phone networks, um, you know that that companies like Huawei are putting in, those, I think, you know, kind of galvanize a, a, a lot of kind of educational opportunities in Africa, so, um, more than necessarily direct transfer. Okay, so it's interesting. So the way to think about this and what you're saying is that the infrastructure that the Chinese are building from Huawei, from ZTE, from any of these other companies, uh, building LTE networks, which are the 4G networks, that's going to facilitate the educational exchanges, but the Chinese themselves may not be on the forefront of the educational content itself. Is that kind of what I'm hearing from you? I think so, yes, yeah. yes. And final thoughts on this subject? I mean, I think that the impact I saw from Chinese exchange and education in Senegal were definitely very positive. And so I think that, you know, expansion and like Koba said, if they can help expand the infrastructure and mobile networks, I think it's it's definitely a positive impact that they're having in Africa. Okay, well that report that Cobus referred to is at elearning-africa.com. We'll put a link on the Facebook page to that. Uh, it's an interesting report. It doesn't really focus you know, too much attention on China's role, but it does focus on the 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 e-learning aspect of it and the potential for Africa and of course that is linked to what China is doing across the continent through its network telecom infrastructure development so you can kind of put those put those together so let's move on to our second topic of the day uh, this is one that was actually rather new for me uh, which was this uh, the growing controversy surrounding uh, Lake Turkana uh, Lake Turkana is in Kenya but it's also you know fed through rivers that come from Ethiopia where the Chinese have funded dam development. Now, the Chinese have a very controversial history around the world, particularly in Southeast Asia, by funding dam development. And these dam developments, you know, water rights is, is really one of the hottest issues going on today. Um, and it really, you know, affects a lot of countries downstream. So, 
Uh, let's start with, you know, the environmental impact, Cobus, of, of the Lake Turkana Dam, and then we're going to move to the oil. First of all, why is this such a critical issue in that part of Africa? Well, this lake is um, is a very sensitive ecosystem, um, a special kind of ecosystem, and um, it ha- it supports a lot of fishing communities um, that live on on its shores, um, and it's also a UNESCO uh, World Heritage Site. Um, so, some activists have been have have said that um, once the dam is up. Uh, you know, the, the the lake gets about eighty percent of its of its water from this one river, and they say once the dam is up, um, it's going to be a kind of an RLC situation, like in in Central Asia, where you know, kind of where the an inland sea was drained and then simply completely dried up and turned into a dust bowl. Um, so you know, kind of, I think the fears are that that a whole bunch of communities downstream are going to like end up being basically landless, and you know, some of the activists have, have actually raised the specter of them kind of being herded into refugee camps. Okay, well, let's give a couple statistics on this lake. It is the largest desert lake in the world, 250 kilometers long, that's about 150 miles, and 60 kilometers wide, so that's a very, very important water source in that part of the uh, of the country. The dam now is being financed by the Chinese, is 50% complete, so it looks like this is going to happen. Uh, you know, and in your thoughts here, is that, is this China's I mean, is China responsible for this? Does China deserve the blame for the environmental impact of this dam? Or does blame lie elsewhere, possibly with the Ethiopians themselves? I mean, I think my reaction is that, one, the Ethiopians do hold most of the blame because I think it's their responsibility to, you know, make rules and regulations and protect their own environment. I think that this also struck me as something like, haven't the Chinese learned from their own mistakes and disasters within China, especially relating to dams and water. Um, so, you know, why wasn't, why hasn't the environmental impact of this been more considered? It just, well, you know, the Chinese love dams. Yeah. I mean, they, it's one of these kind of Stalin yeah, communist I mean, style projects, you know, the Three Gorges Dam was, you know, this, this prod point of pride, despite the environmental and the security impact of it. Uh, I remember talking with a Taiwan security agency official who said, uh, you know, he was very happy that the Three Gorges Dam was built because now if there's ever a war between China and Taiwan, they're just going to fire a missile right into the center of that dam. So, you know, it's just, you know, they're crazy in terms of environment and security risks. But at the same time, it seems like this is a holdover from the communist era. Um, But, you know, Kobus, before I go on, you know, uh, talking about that, you know, it just seems like the Chinese... When it comes to the environment, are there's Hello? a tone... Oh, yes. Have I lost you? Have we lost you, Cobus? No, no, you're back. You're okay, back. good. Uh, back. It just seems that the Chinese have a certain tone deafness when with the environment. So let's kind of quickly walk through some of the issues. We've got now dams on the list. We've talking about, you know, ivory and endangered species. We've been talking about the clear-cutting, the massive, massive clear-cutting of endangered rainforests uh, in Zimbabwe, in Congo, in both the Congos, and throughout that area, the illegal logging that's been going on. Uh, you know, the list of environmental horrors that the Chinese are associated with, fairly or unfairly, you would think that there would be some sensitivity now to not participating in projects that it could only contribute to yet a further worsening of their environmental reputation. Or maybe they just don't care. Maybe they don't give a crap. I think it's that. I think on, on the one hand, you know, kind of, they, they're probably not used to kind of to that being such a liability as it is, you know, kind of seen as in, in the West. I think it's another thing where um, they, I can well imagine that people were saying like, you know, kind of, the, you know, where they, they 
they see their own history with something like the Three Gorges Dam as, as being like just an, an example of expertise, you know. Um, in the third place, I think there's also a tendency to underplay the kind of ecological, um, kind of green power, you know, expansion that China's doing. I mean, China's pretty ex aggressive in terms of, of solar and wind projects. And also in Ethiopia, like a, a big Chinese-funded um, wind farm is about to come online. It's supposed it's slated to come online, you know, kind of halfway through this year. But you never hear anything about that. It seems like the they they seem to be turned deaf on both sides, both in in terms of the the kind of ecologically damaging projects that they're busy with, but also actually the ecolog ecologically beneficial ones that they also, you know, engage in. But scale might have something to do with it. That is, the ecologically beneficial projects are tiny in comparison to the ecologically damaging projects that they're involved with. You know, I mean, and again, it's just... You know, you know, and if I was in in Beijing evaluating these projects, I would maybe take a second thought on on you know funding dams, whatnot. But at the end of the day, the Chinese are driven by pragmatism. Uh, pragmatism, you know, is also you could make the argument is what's led China down a path of environmental hell. Um, you know, the air is simply too thick to breathe in Beijing and Shanghai and Guangzhou and the major cities. You know, most of the world's you know most polluted water sources are in China. And I think there must be a concern in Africa that they're exporting this mentality that led them down, you know, down a hellhole. Right. And I think, I mean, Kobus, I think that you have to wonder, didn't China get so much scrutiny and negative press during before the Olympics and since then on, you know, on the quality of air in Beijing and on the on all the terrible environmental impact that's been going on in China. And so I wonder, you know, why, why haven't they, why aren't they more concerned about this in Africa and their image of doing this in Africa? I don't know. I don't, I wonder if they really just don't care. I understand that they're, you know, driven and focused on, you know, growth and at any cost, but I don't know. Well, there might be a third idea yeah, here that I can throw. I, I think so. I think, go, no, go I, ahead. I wonder also if, if, um, if there isn't also a situation that both in China and in Africa, there tends to be a kind of a, a love for for large scale symbolic engineering projects, you know, kind of where you know the, that the big dam, the big railway, and so on is, is such a kind of a badge of honor for for kind of developing countries that you know that and um, kind of environmental concerns are frequently seen as the as the kind of a do gooding kind of you know kind of Western kind of concern, and you know and and if you know if we're really pushing towards the future, then we need to just you know kind of push forward and like to get these projects done maybe. And then there's a, there's that that's a very important point here. But there's also another kind of aspect is maybe they it's not in their awareness. You know, we've talked about either they're you know ignoring it or they don't care. But it also might be that you know this is just not something that they're conscious of um, as as a priority. Uh, you would you would think it's obvious, but it's not. You know, one of the big concerns about the Chinese in comparison to say the previous colonial, and I'm not equating the Chinese to colonial powers by any means, but I have to put that disclaimer in there given the audience that we have, um, is to say that, you know, the industrialization of the Chinese presence in Africa is so different than the British and the, the Portuguese and some of those other powers. The, the fact that they're bringing in heavy machinery now that can clear cut, you know, forests in, in, a, in, in such a fast, you know, space and the fact that they can build out these infrastructure projects so much faster than other foreign powers were able to do similar infrastructure projects. I think is a real concern, um, and uh, you know, and it could be too late. You know, the fact is that they, they, you know, the, 
you know, with the heavy machinery, their ability to to affect damage could be just at a scale that is that we haven't seen before. So just, you know, that's that's another aspect to think about. Final thoughts, Anne, on this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I just wonder where the Ethiopian government is and why there hasn't been, you know, more scrutiny, especially, you know, one of the biggest concerns you hear from Africans about the Chinese impact in Africa is, oh, they're here to exploit our resources. And so it seems like why, you know, why hasn't this caused a lot of, I guess, more deeper luck from the Ethiopian government. Yeah, and more attention focused on the you know what? Ethiopian I think, I think it, from the Ethiopian government, they might be seeing it from exactly the kind of opposite perspective in the sense that they might be seeing it as beneficiation of resources. Um, you know, kind of, I think the Ethiopians seem to be positioning themselves as the kind of electricity seller to the sub-region. Um, and they, they're already selling electricity to, um, to Somalia. And apparently this... Um, they're going to be. They've already signed agreements to sell um, hydroelectricity from this project to Djibouti and and Somaliland and Kenya as well. So they seem to be kind of like you know kind of putting themselves in the position where they're going to be like providing electricity for that whole for the whole of East Africa, um, and they might be you know they might well be kind of characterizing it as kind of canny kind of canny you know developmentalist kind of expansionism um particularly because we also recently saw that they found they found oil in the same area so well which is you know on the kenyan side though um you know kind of so it might be also be a kind of a the the the, the very kind of regional integration you know kind of planning that that everyone has been calling for yeah, that's one point we didn't bring up, which is the presence of oil in Lake Turkana. And also, again, we've talked in previous podcasts about how the Chinese are eager to diversify their oil supplies beyond Sudan and Angola to more stable areas, particularly in eastern Africa. So this ultimately may play into that strategy as well. Uh, so we'll post a link to the AFP report on the Lake Turkana story. It's one that I think we'll want to continue to mo- to monitor, and I think I re- it'll be a, a little bit of their... Uh, you know, an indication of how sensitive the Chinese are to environmental concerns, or if they don't care, or if in fact this is really just all about electricity for the Ethiopians and oil for the Kenyans and the Chinese. Let's conclude today on uh, an India-China story. I hesitate to put this at the end of a show, only because it's such a huge story that really deserves an entire episode to itself. But Anne and Cobus tweeted about this this week, and it was a story that appeared in the Daily News, um, in their Desi News section, and it's uh, titled, India Should Take on Chinese Investment Blitzkrieg in Africa. So, you know, Anne, one of the themes that I've kind of seen in the Indian perspective on the Chinese in Africa is this immense insecurity. Uh, and they kind of frame things in this competition that India needs to compete with China. India needs to beat China. And it seems to me that the Indians have the sensitivity in part because, you know, there's this deep, long history of the Indians in East Africa, in South Africa, in Tanzania, in Kenya and whatnot. And they feel maybe that there's that was a, traditionally a zone... Uh, of influence for them, in part because of their relationship with the British, and now the Chinese are displacing them. What's your thought on this? Well, I thought this article was um, pretty amazing because, you know, here you have this Ugandan official saying that, you know, the the Indians, you know, unlike the Chinese, they have high quality goods, they, you know, they're going to they're going to be, you know, a better force and a better um, presence in Africa. And when I, you know, I think Indians have the same issues with corruption, cheap labor, cheap quality goods. And 
So what, what would be the difference of their presence, I guess, in Africa? And are we just afraid of a rising China or, you know, trying to hedge against that? I don't, I don't really know. Kobus? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and I was wondering also what you made of the of the the like what struck me as the weirdest thing of all of this was this kind of Ugandan academic and he's like you know he's saying things like you know kind of India we we need kind of projects from India in order to counteract the threat from Chinese exp- of the Chinese expansion model, and I'm like why why is it an either or for Uganda why why aren't they just taking like welcoming all investors. Right. I mean, I think that the more competition, you know, there is in Africa, the better the better deal Africa gets. So I don't know why it was like he was framing it as, you know, India will come in and replace China and be, you know, be a better force. Well, you know, a little food for thought here. I mean, in, in some ways, this is what, you know, how the Europeans must feel as well. You know, now they've been you know, put off against the Chinese by a lot of Indian government, a lot of African governments. Now, this might happen to, you know, to to the Chinese themselves. Give you a little context here. Uh, Sino-African trade was $130 billion in 2011. Uh, African-Indian trade was $46 billion. So really a huge difference. So there is really no competition at this point. That said, it could be in certain markets like South Africa, Cobus, where the Indian and particularly in small Indian, small to mid-sized Indian merchants um, have a lot of historical advantages, I would imagine. Yes, yes. Um, in, in Southern Africa, you know, kind of, I think the, you know, the Chinese and the Indians have been um, in, in South Africa for roughly the same amount of time. Um, and they came via kind of similar, you know, uh, colonial kind of networks. But the Indians have been much, much more um, active in South African history and they, they're much, you know, they have much higher visibility. Um, in terms of Uganda, I wanted to ask you guys' opinion. Do you think that part of this Part of this kind of hard line taken by this this Ugandan academic, do you think this has something to do with with trying to kind of make up or erase Uganda's own terrible kind of history with the Indians? I mean, I couldn't help but think about Idi Amin when I was reading this article. Yes. Kind of like this guilt over the expulsion of so many Indians in the early 70s from from Uganda and that there's kind of like, you know, this overcompensation. Um, It's it's ultimately, as Anne said, a a really mind-numbingly stupid path to go down to say we're going to pick one or the other when in fact these con- all economies should be open in my opinion to whoever is going to benefit the economy the best and the society the best so if the if the indians come in with better products better deals better skills transfer and they can establish a better relationship a more equitable relationship then they should go for it um, that doesn't mean necessarily to the exclusion of the chinese but it may put pressure on the chinese to improve their game to have some competition particularly from india i guess and that's what you're saying as well Right. I think that, you know, if Indians do come in and provide a better good, that's going to, you know, encourage Chinese to have to improve their quality or have to, you know, compete with the Indians some way. But isn't this in some, maybe it goes even deeper than what you're saying, Kobus, in terms of, of Idi Amin and, and that. But, you know, because, because of colonialism, you know, each African country was assigned a foreign power. Uh, so and that relationship was dominated by that foreign power. So maybe we see these instincts kind of come back, which says we have to pick one instead of we have to partner with many. What do you think? Yes, 
Yes, I think so. And also, you know, kind of the, um, the Ugandans have been making explicit kind of references to a shared colonial history with India. You know, kind of that, that they're kind of both, because they were both British colonies, they have this kind of like cultural link that they should now, you know, kind of emphasize. And uh, yeah, you know, I think you're completely right. I think there is, there is a bit of a colonial complex kind of playing out here. Well, and again, the example yeah. here might be, sorry, and well, uh, the example might be Paul Kagame in Rwanda, where... You know, he's done an excellent job. I mean, we're not going to talk about the politics because that is, to me, depressing. But on the economic side and the economic development side of things, he's done an excellent job taking from the South Koreans, taking from the Americans, taking from everybody who feels guilty about the, the massacre and really using that to his maximum advantage. In some ways, I think Kagami's Rwanda is the example for the continent on how to negotiate and how to try to extract leverage and participate with everybody. And what are your final thoughts on this subject? Well, I understand what you're saying about picking, you know, a, a great power, but I think I understand that in terms of picking maybe U.S. versus China, but I kind of see India and China as, you know, South-South cooperation, um, kind of two countries that Africa could envision working together in a cooperative fashion, not necessarily having, you know, to pick one another like like they often frame the U.S. versus China. Right. So. Yeah. Uh, final thoughts, Kobus? Yeah, no, it's just, you know, kind of in, in reading about this, I, I saw one one very kind of telling little little news news um, article saying that now, the first time in 40 years, um, the Bank of India is returning to Uganda. They, they've actually, you know, they're opening branches again in Uganda, and they closed their branches clearly 40 years ago due to kind of anti-Indian, you know, activism um, in, you know, this in the 70s by, by Idi Amin. You know, so it's just interesting to see, you know, kind of how the Indians are slowly but surely kind of coming back to Uganda. You know. And they've also set up the Bank of India. I think their export-import bankers following China's lead and setting up a billion-dollar uh, you know, aid and investment fund. So we'll probably see more of the Indians uh, you know, being much more aggressive economically in Africa. This is an issue that we're going to focus on you know, probably on a whole show coming up because it's one we've neglected over the past few months, but one that is becoming increasingly important. Speaking of India and China, uh, Anne posted, and I think this was you, Anne, posted an excellent question on our Facebook page. That's at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Uh, we're growing our fan base, so we're actually very thrilled about that. So we hope that you'll like the page. Uh, and you posted the question last week about are Indian goods consistently better quality than Chinese? Would Indian exports to Africa counteract the threat from the Chinese or close the market space for African goods even more? So maybe you can vote on that. Um, what were what was your thoughts on uh, on our vote so far on that, Anne? I mean, it, it's interesting. I guess a lot of people thought that you know, no, Indian goods aren't necessarily better than Chinese, and you know, this wouldn't be the end all solution, like we've been saying on the podcast today. Um, there was an interesting question posed by one of our followers, you know, basically saying that India really really isn't competing with China yet, and so they kind of need to prove themselves before we even go down this line. Mm -hmm. So, Well, we'll have that question up, and then Kobus is going to post a question on uh, Mandarin education. Kobus, what are you going to post for next week on the Facebook page for the question of the week? Yeah, I'd actually, I'd like to hear, you know, kind of from our, from our, um, our followers and our readers, um, whether they think that Mandarin should become a standard part of African curriculums. Um, and whether, you know, and, and, and then also, you know, should, should Mandarin start, Mandarin education start from from you know which which level preschools you know primary school secondary school university 
Excellent. So Cobus will be posting that uh, on Facebook.com slash China Africa Project. We're all kind of participating in the conversation there. You can also, of course, listen to the podcast. There's a little audio button. We have all of our shows that are there as well. And all of us are active on Twitter. And Cobus, if people want to follow you on Twitter for the latest news uh, from Cape Town and the Center for Chinese Studies, what should they do to find you? They can find me at Stadenesque, that's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And Anne, where, how, what's your address on Twitter? I am AnneSher07, A-N-N-E-S-H-E-R-07. Excellent, and you can find me at E-O-Lander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R, and I'm tweeting most days on China Africa headlines. Also, you can find us on iTunes, and we're going to make a small plea to uh, to our growing listenership on iTunes that if you can you know, rate us on iTunes and leave some comments, that would be great, preferably, you know, positive comments, but we don't necessarily always want that. Uh, constructive criticism is also welcome, but the more people that participate on iTunes, it surfaces it and it gives us a better shot of getting exposed higher in the iTunes uh, search index. So we would, uh, any support you can give would be greatly appreciated. We'll be back again next week with another discussion on the week's events in China in Africa. Uh, we'll talk to you then. Thanks for listening. <laughs>